If you have your copy of the scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. Here we go. Last week we introduced our study in the book of Leviticus, looked at a few details, but today we get really into the details of our walk through over the next number of weeks this book that is at the heart of the five books of Moses. I don't think we pointed this out last week, but it's it's interesting to note that when you think about those five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus really is the heart of the Pentateuch. The message that it declares about what is required to worship a holy God and to live as his holy people is at the heart of not only the first five books of the Scriptures, but really at the heart of the entire message of the Bible as God declares His work of redeeming fallen creation. Now, as we enter into the book of Leviticus, it's going to be a lot of words and a lot of words with that paint pictures that are difficult to follow at, at times, perhaps. How many of you have put together Ikea furniture? All right, so the thing about Ikea furniture is when you get the directions, there are almost no words at all. It's almost all pictures. And that's great because it can transcend cultures, right? It's easy to follow a picture. It's often much easier to follow a picture than to follow words. Well, we have the opposite when we come to the book of Leviticus. We don't have any pictures, but we have a lot of words. And not just any words, but the words that the Holy Spirit inspired as Moses wrote down these words, words that by God's Spirit have been preserved for us, and words that will, with the eyes of faith, help us see pictures of Jesus and help us worship and treasure Jesus more clearly, more fully, more deeply. Let's read Leviticus Chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water." And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." as we consider what God has to say to us through this first chapter of the book of Leviticus. You see there in the bulletin, I've entitled this sermon, The Gospel According to the Burnt Offering. There is good news if we have ears to hear in this description of this first offering in a series of offerings that the Lord is going to detail over the next six chapters or so. And so that's what I want us to hear. That's what I pray that we will hear and see the good news that is proclaimed in these verses and throughout the Scriptures in light of what God institutes here. So in order for us to see, to hear the good news that is really in these verses, there are two main things that we're going to walk through. First, we're going to consider the procedure, the procedure that is laid out for us here. And then in that procedure, the provision that God is making in the gift of this sacrifice. So first, let's consider the procedure, the procedure of the burnt offering. Now, before we actually detail the procedure itself as it's given to us, we need to see a couple of of things about where this section, this chapter, fits in with the overall book of Leviticus. What is most helpful in recognizing this is actually going back to the previous book, Exodus. Because in many respects, Exodus ends and it continues right into the book of Leviticus. So turn to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 34. By the time we come to this point in the story of Exodus, the instructions for the tabernacle have been given that roaming tent of worship. 
The tabernacle has been constructed according to the plans given to Moses, and now we read what happens. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the, if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle day by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, the main thing we need to observe here as the, the cloud covers the tent of meeting and the glory fills the tabernacle, what happens in verse 35? Moses, the one who had ascended the mountain multiple times, had spoken to the Lord, would come down from the mountain with a veil covering his face because of the glory of the Lord reflecting off of his face. What do we read in verse 35? Even that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle so that what happens at the beginning of Leviticus 1 the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting we don't know exactly what this looks like but Moses did not go into the tent of meeting he could no longer go in because of the glory of the Lord in its place instead the Lord speaks to Moses from out of the tabernacle and gives to him these instructions. Well, what instructions does he give to Moses? He gives to Moses instructions about five different sacrifices that are going to be required to be offered so that in chapter 1 through chapter 6 verse 7, we have God detailing these five different sacrifices and the requirements for the Israelites as they would offer these sacrifices. Then, if you flip to, you don't have to flip here, but if you were to turn to chapter 6, verse 8, through the end of chapter 7, we have the Lord recounting all of the sacrifices again, but now He details the instructions for the priests related to these sacrifices. So what is happening? You have the glory of the Lord that has come upon the tabernacle. Moses can't go in. And if Moses the mediator can't go in, no one can go in. Something has to be done. What has to be done? Well, two things have to be done. There has to be a priesthood. There have to be priests who will function as the mediators between a holy God and His people. But the priests have not been installed yet. In fact, they're not going to be installed until Leviticus chapter 8. And then continuing into verse chapter 9, and we see the beginning of their priesthood in chapter 9 and chapter 10. So we have no priests to operate. Why do we have no priests? Because they haven't been installed. Why haven't they been installed as priests to function between God and His people? 
because the sacrifices have not been made in order to install them as priests. Why have the sacrifices not been made to install these priests? Because they don't have the instructions for the sacrifices that are to be made for the priests to be installed so that the priests might function as the mediators between a holy God and his sinful people. And so, where does God begin in his instructions to the people? He begins to them with the sacrifices that will be required to install the priests and to begin their operation, their life as a community of worship, a kingdom of priests before a holy God. And so the sacrifices are essential. The sacrifices are essential to establish, to install the priesthood. But even after chapter 10, when we get into chapters 11 all the way through chapter 27, we're going to see these sacrifices showing up over and over and over and over and over again because sacrifice, and specifically blood sacrifice, four of the five sacrifices that are detailed in chapters 1 through 6 are blood sacrifices. Blood sacrifices were required for Israel to enjoy the presence of a holy God in their midst. And so we have this series of sacrifices. But the sacrifices have to start somewhere. They have to start with one of them before they start detailing all of them. And so the Lord begins with the burnt offering. Why the burnt offering? Why is this burnt offering, or in some translations, the whole burnt offering, why is it at the beginning? Well, for two reasons. One, because it was the most common of all of the offerings. Individuals would offer this offering at different times, and we will see some of those instances as we walk through Leviticus, some of the requirements for when the burnt offering would would show up. But also, it was an offering that was offered every morning and every evening for the community. This was a community offering. It was an ongoing practice. It was the most common of all of the sacrifices. But not only was it the most common, and probably closely related to the fact that it was the most common, it was the most important. It was the most important of all of the sacrifices. One commentator observes this, on every one of the Israelite feast days, excluding the Day of Atonement, when the sin offering is the central focus, the burnt offering was the most important sacrifice. On every feast day, except the Day of Atonement, this offering was the most important one that would be offered. But even on the Day of Atonement, it's interesting if you, as you read through Leviticus 16, the two burnt offerings that are offered on that day, the high day of the Jewish worship calendar, it is the burnt offerings that are offered as the climactic event 
of the day. After purification has been made, after the goat, that scapegoat is sent out, the the high priest changes his clothes and he comes back and he offers a burnt offering for himself and for his people as the culmination of the day's sacrificial worship. So this offering stands as the most important of all of Israel's sacrifices. And so it is appropriate that it would open this book. But what is the procedure? What's what's going on here? Well, notice, as we read, did you hear that the Lord details three different burnt offerings? So in verses 3 through 9, we have the burnt offering from the herd, the male from the herd, or a bull, a bull that would be offered. And then when you come to verses 10 through 13, what are we looking at now? Well, it is a gift from the flock, either from the sheep or the goats. And then the third is from an offering of birds in verses 14 through 17. So we have this layer of three different descriptions. Now, the fullest description is the description given for that first burnt offering, the bull, in verses 3 through 9. It's the most explicit because much of what it says or parts of what it says are just assumed in the others. It's so that as Moses details... And the Lord details to Moses the offering for the sheep or offering of the sheep and then the offering of the birds. He doesn't repeat everything that he said, but we can understand that what he says about the importance, the consequence of the offering in the herd also applies when he details these other two types of burnt offerings from the flock, sheep or goat, and from the birds. Now, What do we see then happening in this gift of the bull? Well, here I do want us to use a picture. I do want to use a picture to help us envision what's going on. I think, James, I'm going to need your help here. Oh, I forgot. The back screen is not working. That's why I can't see it. All right, it's up here. So you can can see what is... What is going on? So this is a picture of the tabernacle and its courtyard, okay? Because we have detailed out what the individual is supposed to do as he brings his bull or sheep or bird into the courtyard of the tabernacle. So what is the first thing that we are told? We're told that the offering specifically for the bull and of the sheep and goats is to be a male and without blemish. Now, when he brings that offering then, that perfect bull or sheep, into the tabernacle area, he is to take it in front of the tent of meeting. And as he takes it into, or in front of the tent of meeting, what does he do to that animal? Notice in verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. So he brings it He brings it in and he lays his head. There may have been some prescribed words that he uttered as he laid his hands 
on the head of that animal. But then, after he lays his hands on that animal, what happens? Notice in verse 5. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. Who kills the bull? Who kills the sacrificial animal? It's not the priests. It is the worshiper himself who slays this animal as an offering to the Lord. And so, after he kills the animal, verse 5, what do the priests do? And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So, they will collect the blood after the animal is killed, and then they will splash it on the sides of the altar. Then what happens? The bull has been killed. Its blood has been splashed. Then, verse 6, he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. That is, he shall remove its skin and he shall cut it into pieces. Now, what then happens? Well, it's interesting here that the Lord details, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Here, this is necessary, especially for the first burnt offering, because fire hadn't been established. But once the fire is there, it's going. But the fire was necessary. Why? Because it's going to burn the offering. So, fire on the altar, and then the priest, verse 7, the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Verse 8, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. So the priest takes the pieces of the bull or the pieces of the sheep or goat or the bird and lays it on the altar to be burned. All of it that is laid there. Then, what does the worshiper do? The worshiper has cleanup duty. Verse 9, its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. Its intestines and its hind legs the worshiper had to wash with water. Why? To clean it to get all of the animal's waste off of the animal because this clean, perfect animal was to be offered to the Lord and there was to be no defilement on it. So the, that which would have been defiled by natural processes, it is washed and also placed on the altar. We see a similar activity, though slightly different, for the bird. Notice down in verse 15, here the priest rings off its head. It's the priest that kills the bird and burns it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. The procedures are a little bit different because the animal is so small. Verse 16, he shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for the ashes. So here is the addressing of that, that digestive system and putting it 
away. It is not washed. It is just done away with. But then notice, after things have been washed, cut, placed on the altar, go back to verse 9. The priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. One of the things that we're going to find as we continue working our way through the sacrifices is that the rest of them, not all of the time, but the vast majority of the time, all of the other sacrifices included some sort of portion for food, either for the priests or for the worshiper or for both. But in this case, there was no food to be had. This was a sacrifice that was wholly offered to the Lord. The only thing that was used from this sacrifice was its skin. The priest who placed the items on the altar, he was given the skin of the animal. We read about this in Leviticus 7. But everything else, there's no food taken from this animal all of it, exterior, interior, is burned up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Now, you might be feeling at the moment like the high school math, science, English student who's thinking, when am I ever going to use this? What is the point? Friends, there's a point. There's a point for why this chapter has been preserved for us. And while there are other things that we could probably detail out, I'm sure, I know, I know that we could, the point for us is the provision that is being made by God in this offering. Three things about this provision. First, this offering, along with the others, but specifically, this offering is given to address the separation. Remember what we observed and when we read the end of the book of Leviticus just a little bit ago? And the beginning, or excuse me, the end of the book of Exodus? And the beginning of the book of Leviticus, what happened? As the glory of the Lord came upon the tabernacle, not even Moses the mediator could go in. So that God speaks out of the tent to Moses. This signals that there is a separation. There is a separation. Even though God has saved His people, and they are His people, there is a separation in this time between a sinful people and a holy God. And the gift of the burnt offering is given to, in an ongoing way, address this separation. It had to be offered in an ongoing way because as we read in the book of Hebrews, there was no offering that could be given, no animal offering that is, that could be given, that could permanently address the separation between a holy God and sinful humanity. But friends, praise Jesus, there is now a sacrifice that has been offered that when offered once for all, not day after day, 
has addressed the separation between a holy God and a sinful people. Because what does the Bible say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Our rebellion against God creates a separation, creates a division. And friends, there is nothing that we can do. There is nothing that we can do to address this division. Sometimes in my conversations with folks about the gospel, I'll use this, this illustration. Imagine for, imagine for a moment, all right, what I'm about to describe is impossible to do, okay? So bear with me. Imagine for a moment that today you could say, you know what, I see that God is holy and I am sinful. I have rebelled against Him. And so today, I'm going to commit to obeying God perfectly from now until the end of my days. And I'm never going to sin again. Imagine if you could do that. You can't. I can't. But imagine if you could do that. Friend, would that be enough? Would that be sufficient to address this separation between you and the holy God who created you? It wouldn't. Why not? Because you have your record of sin, and I have my record of sin for my entire life up until this point. And God, being a holy God, cannot just look aside and say, well, that doesn't matter. You've done enough to kind of counteract that, so that past rebellion doesn't matter. No, friends. All of our rebellion against a holy God matters. And He must respond in a holy, righteous, and even loving way to our rebellion as a holy God. So that there is nothing that you can do to address the separation that your sin creates between you and a holy God. The burnt offering addressed in an ongoing way this separation along with the other sacrifices. But the provision is not only addressing the separation. The provision is a sacrifice. The provision is a giving up of something. These sacrifices, they were costly. They were expensive. A bull would not have been cheap. A sheep, for those who could afford it, would not have been cheap. But notice, God doesn't simply say, any old bull will do. Any old sheep will do. It has to be the best. It has to be the one without blemish. Only that kind of sacrifice would God accept as the burnt offering that His people would offer to Him. But in the cost, there is a recognition by God that not everyone could afford the same sacrifice. The poorest in the community had no hope of ever owning a bull, 
the poorest had no hope of even ever owning a sheep. So what does God do for the poor among them? He provides a means by which they could offer this sacrifice, the turtle doves. And the middle class, what could they offer? They could offer the sheep or the goat. The wealthy among them, if they could afford it, the cost to them was a bull. For all of them, it was costly. It was expensive. Friends, the cost to address our sin before a holy God costs more than we could ever imagine. The one and only Son of God. As Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, at the end of that chapter, if there was any other way that we could be made right with God, then Christ died in vain. But Christ died because there was no other way that we could be made completely and eternally right with a holy God. Friends, it cost us nothing in one sense. But God gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would have eternal life. As Paul writes in Romans 8, He didn't spare His own Son, but He gave His only Son so that you and I could be forgiven. So that our separation could be addressed. But in this sacrifice that is given, not only is it costly, but it is complete. The whole thing is offered except for that skin. And so, the gift of Jesus in our place was complete. As we read multiple times in Philippians, Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Not up to the brink of death, but all the way to and through death. So that the sacrifice of Jesus for sinners like you and me, was a complete sacrifice. And friends, even though it did not cost us for Jesus to die in our place, friends, to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, it does cost you everything. What did Jesus say in Matthew 16, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It costs all of us. Jesus calls us to follow him with everything that we are with all that we have, with all of our hearts. What is the first and greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The call is to complete devotion. 
And this burnt offering in being a whole offering that is wholly offered to the Lord pictures for us the fact that we are to wholly offer ourselves to the one true and living God. But in this sacrifice, not only is it costly, not only is it complete, but there is an identification. There is an identification between the worshiper and the offering. What is the identification? How does that come about? It's in that picture there in verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. A picture of identifying with that offering. In some sense, the offerer is saying what is about to happen to this animal is what should be happening to me. But in God's kindness, what should be happening to me, this animal is going to take on in my place. And friends, that is precisely what Jesus has done for us. He has identified with us. He has taken our sin upon Himself. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He Himself partook of the same things. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who in every respect has been tempted as we were, yet without sin. Friends, Jesus has identified with us. So that Paul can write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took upon himself in his identification for us. He took upon himself our sin so that we might be forgiven and so that we in being identified with him might receive His righteousness. His perfection. But not only does the burnt offering point to the separation, the sacrifice that God provides. Notice in verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him. Why? To make atonement for him. And there it is. The making of atonement. The reconciling of God and man. The price being paid for our sin. This idea of atonement... It's one that's debated. What exactly is meant here? Does this mean that the, the sacrifice in some way is making the offerer clean from the pollution, the dirt of his sin? Well, that's part of it. That's part of it. But friends, that's not all of it. 
There's a song that we sing from time to time that includes a beautiful line to this effect. Rock of ages. Rock of ages cleft for me. In that hymn we sing, be of sin the double cure. There are two problems with our sin that must be addressed. Yes, we are polluted by sin. Sin defiles us. And it defiles everything that it touches. But it also makes us guilty. We are guilty before God because we have rebelled against Him. And so, we need a double cure. Save from wrath, forgiveness because of our guilt, and make me pure. Cleanse me from my sin. And the New Testament writers don't say that we have to go either or here. In fact, we should not go either or here. It is a both and. First John, we read that Christ is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. And in just in a few verses prior, John has written, but we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There is that cleansing, that wiping clean from the defilement of sin, from the pollution of sin sin, but elsewhere we read that not only does the sacrifice of Christ wipe us clean, but it also provides forgiveness. It also addresses our record of guilt. Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, that is declared right by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. Ephesians 1, in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9 In Hebrews 9 we read, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness from sin. In Christ, the stain of our sin is addressed so that in Him, in the righteousness of Christ, we become the righteousness of God. But also, the guilt of our sin is addressed. So that I think when we read about the atonement that is provided by the burnt offering, it's not an either-or. There is a cleansing. There are other offerings that are going to be offered for other cleansings. We'll read about those. But there is also the provision, the reminder and provision of forgiveness that God provides through the sacrifice. And as we have said, The greater cleansing, the greater forgiveness, the more comprehensive cleansing, the forgiveness that covers all of our sin. Friends, it can't be obtained by offering a bull. It can't be obtained by offering a sheep or a goat. It can't be obtained by offering birds. It can only be known 
in the offering, in the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ given for sinners like you and me. Do you this morning know the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know God's forgiveness in Christ? How can that forgiveness be yours? Not by going through some ritualistic motions. How can the forgiveness, the cleansing of God be yours today? We read it in Romans 3. Through faith. By trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we said earlier, friends, this will cost you everything. Because Jesus provides His life so that we might live in obedience following Him. Not perfectly. We won't do this perfectly, which is why we need to continually remember the perfect, complete gift of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. But friend, do you know Jesus today? Are you following Jesus today? If not, I would love to talk with you after the service, perhaps over lunch, about how you can know the forgiveness of God in Christ. But if you're here today and you're trusting Christ, you're striving to follow Him, let us remember as we strive to give ourselves to Christ in greater and greater obedience. Friends, we will stumble along the way. We will continue to fall short. But, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hands. My name is graven on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue, no tongue, can bid me thence depart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the gift of these pictures. These pictures that tell us as You were preparing the way for Jesus to come. Pictures that tell us what was required of Your people so that they might live and continue to live as Your people with Your holy presence among them. Father, thank You that from these words we learn more about the extent of our sin, the, the need for cleansing because of our sin. But Father, thank You that more than that, these words pave the way for the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us. Father, we thank You and praise You for Jesus, the atoning sacrifice who has been given so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be spared from receiving the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. Father, help us to not see this as 
an either or. Either you are wrathful against sin or you are loving and kind. Help us to see, Father, the both and in these words. That yes, as a holy and righteous God, it is right and good for you to respond rightly, wholly, justly to rebellion against you who are the perfect one. But Father, that is a part of the picture. It is an important part of the picture. But Father, thank you that it is not the whole picture. The Father that we see in your word, that in your love, Because of your steadfast, your abiding love, you have given the Lord Jesus to take upon Himself the punishment that should have been ours so that in Him we might know forgiveness. In Him we might know life. In Him we might have the promise of an eternity with you and with Him forever and forever. Father, we thank You for Jesus. And Father, we pray that You would help us even today to consider how it is that You are calling us to give of ourselves wholly unto You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.